Thank you for downloading this podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. So in this episode, we are going to be reading a couple of articles from the September-October 2019 California Freemason Magazine, and the title of this issue of California Freemason was Crafting Their Legacy. Uh, So the reason it's going to be somewhat short is because there's a lot of pictures, a lot of pictures of a lot of different types of exhibits and different items. So there will be a link to the actual issue in the show notes, uh, so you can hopefully go on and take a look at some of these things. But the first article is called The Pin Code, and if you're like me, you've got a collection of Masonic pins. Um, I don't even know how many I have anymore. I've got a shadow box full of them, and I've got a drawer that I've picked up over the last year that I need to put in there. So, the PIN code. Every fall at annual communication, as the Grand Master prepares for the busy year ahead, he's faced with the sizable task of articulating the theme which will both guide his administration and ultimately define its legacy. And it needs to fit on a lapel pin. Although the precise provenance of the Grandmaster pin tradition is unclear, it's one that's taken off over the past few decades, and one incoming officers look forward to keenly, even years in advance. On top of embodying their personal history and goals, the pins can serve as a subtle clue to fellow Masons and prospects. It generates a conversation, says Grandmaster Stuart A. Wright. People see it and start to ask questions about the fraternity and what we do. Wright's pin, which he strategically refers to as an action pin, is designed specifically to be just that, a call to action for members and non-members alike. The phrase, I make a difference, together with the gold square and compass and three shining jewels, all above the Masonic values of brotherly love, relief, and truth, work together to communicate what the fraternity means to write, and by extension, to whoever dons it. Making a difference and articulating our values to a broader public is an important part of my priorities for the year, Wright says. I wanted our values to be front and center. Though there are no hard and fast rules governing a pin's design, past Grandmaster Richard Wakefield Hopper says there are a few things to consider. If you're going to put an emblem on it, you want it to be big enough that it's recognizable and readable, but not too big, he says. You don't want to wear a playing card on your shirt. For his own pin, Hopper settled on a simple design featuring a pair of sequoia trees and the phrase, Standing Strong. I live in Visalia, the gateway to the giant sequoia trees, Hopper says. The giant sequoia tree never stands alone, and that's like masonry. We have to stand as a body of men who believe in what we teach and learn. For past Grandmaster Frank Louis, whose theme was connect, communicate, and commit, the choice seemed obvious. I was born and raised in San Francisco, so I used the Golden Gate Bridge, he says. Too easy? Apparently not. As iconic a structure as the bridge is, it had somehow never adorned a Grandmaster's pin before Louis's turn. Like Hopper and Louis, past Grandmaster M. David Perry chose to pay homage to his hometown on his pin. Below the words rise and build, grapes rest upon the square and compass, signifying both his Napa Valley roots and the symbolism of grapes to Masonic tradition. 
The pin was especially meaningful for Perry because it was designed by his son Nicholas, then a student at the San Francisco Art Institute. Designing the pin seemed to spark an interest in the younger Perry, and shortly after finishing it, Nicholas petitioned to join. I think it gave him the chance to think about Freemasonry a little differently, Perry says. It's in moments like those that these coin-sized adornments transcend their purpose, Perry says. Traditions are passed down, and hopefully, conversations are started. Written by Kelsey Lennon Crafting Their Legacy A new Masonic folk art exhibition shines a light on Freemasonry's symbolism and mystery. By K.M. Sonlein What does an old officer's apron tell us about our state's history? What can Lodge banners say about the fraternity's relationship to the wider culture? These are the kind of questions driving a new exhibition. From the hands of fellowship, Masonic folk art from the collection of the Henry W. Coyle Library and Museum of Freemasonry. Launching during annual communication at Grand Lodge in San Francisco, October 18th through the 21st. And of course, this was back in 2019. Organized by Museum Collections Manager Joe Evans, From the Hands of Fellowship celebrates handmade fraternal objects, including aprons, quilts, walking sticks, and more, mostly dated pre-1850. Contained within these pieces are larger clues about their owners, their community, even gender and class distinctions. From the Hands of Fellowship will remain on display throughout 2019 by appointment. Here, over the following pages, Evans goes deep on a few of these beautiful, mysterious relics. So the first item shown is a Master Mason apron, circa 1800 to 1807, watercolor and ink on silk and linen. Most 19th century Masonic aprons don't indicate who their owner was. However, this one bears an inscription under the flap. Brother Ralph Hankins, Tammany Lodge No. 83, November 16, 1807. A lodge near Milanville, Pennsylvania, hand-painted in watercolors, this silk and linen apron employs a German folk style that shows up in the handcrafts of immigrant colonies along the Mohawk River in Pennsylvania and New York. The female figure personifying Hope, with her characteristic anchor, stands in profile at the center. Donated in 1978 by Jean A. Lapel of San Francisco. So the next item here is actually pretty cool, and you definitely have to check these pictures out is a miniature lodge room in a wooden box, circa 1850 to 1900, made from wood and bone. This rare, small wooden box replicates a lodge room in miniature, though its story beyond that remains a mystery. It conceivably served as a map or blueprint for candidates, or as a way for lodge officers to practice floor work. The box and its checkerboard interior date from the mid to late 19th century. While the miniature working tools inside the lid, carved from wooden bones, seem to have been added in the 20th century. The next item is a lacquer box, circa 1830 to 1850, lacquerware and nacre. Originated in Japan in the middle of the 19th century, this beautiful black lacquered keepsake box is decorated with mother of pearl, inlaid floral designs, and Masonic symbols. The all-seeing eye, altar, beehive, hourglass, compasses, square, clasped hands, and trowel. Since Freemasonry did not exist in Japan during this period, Japanese craftsmen probably produced boxes like this one for a sea captain or to be traded in Europe. So next we have two royal arch aprons, 
uh, one circa 1830 to 1850, silk, hemp linen, and cotton. And the next one circa 1800 to 1820, watercolor and ink on silk and linen. Nope, make that four. The third one is the Royal Arch Apron, circa 1820 to 1840, silk and cotton. And the last one is Royal Arch Apron, circa 1800 to 1820, paint and ink on leather. The Royal Arch symbol anchors many of the aprons found in the Masonic Archive, including many pieces donated by Leslie Woodworth, a prominent collector of Masonic memorabilia, including the apron seen at the bottom left. The figure at the top right is of unknown origin, but closely resembles aprons made by folk artist Conrad Edick held in the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library in Lexington, Massachusetts. Edick worked in 19th century German immigrant communities in Pennsylvania and New York. Another piece seen at top left, a Scottish apron of hemp linen, is unusually large, mimicking the workmen's aprons worn by operative stonemasons of the mid-19th century. Designs for aprons in the early 1800s were often copied by engravers from books, after which professional painters would add artistic touches such as gilding, as seen on the apron at the bottom right. Next up, we have an emblematic carpet, circa 1860s, made of wool. This bold red and black carpet fragment may have been woven by the Sisters of the Order of Holy Cross at St. Mary's College, South Bend, Indiana. The carpet's pattern repeats a tiered series of arches. An individual segment like this would have been sewn together with others to create a large area rug. Apparently, this piece of carpet was used as a tapestry after Esmeralda Lodge No. 6 became part of the Grand Lodge of Nevada in 1863. Uh, next up, we have the Order of the Free Gardeners apron, circa 1840, of silk and cotton. Not quite Masonic, this dramatic, oversized, blue silk apron has its origin in the Free Gardener Society, founded in Scotland in the 17th century, to promote and regulate the gardening profession. The society, which spread to England and eventually the United States, resembled Freemasonry in its lodges, lodge officers, and Grand Lodge. During the 19th century, the free gardeners adopted many symbols of Freemasonry, including the square, compass, and grafting knife. The initials A, N, and S in the triangles at the bottom represented the biblical figures Adam, Noah, and Solomon, all claimed by the society as master gardeners. We have a wooden box, circa 1900, of wood, brass, and bone. Found in an antique shop in Paris, this curious handmade wooden box with its precise brass fittings seems to be of Masonic origin. The central figure, carved in bone, activates the box's lock when pressed. The seven brass symbols mounted on the front, U, V, C, T, square, compass, hammer, axe, pinchers, awl, and planer, allude to a fraternal organization such as the Compagnons de Devois, comprised of French craftsmen and artisans dating back to the Middle Ages. Next up, we have a Knights Templar 22nd Triennial Conclave Ribbon Quilt, circa 1883 to 1900, made of wool, silk, satin, and cotton. This intricate example of a crazy quilt would have been considered a status symbol in the late 19th century, a sign that its female quilters had enough leisure time and wealth to painstakingly sew it together. This one is composed of 115 ribbons from the 1883 Knights Templar Triennial held in San Francisco. The silk ribbons from the various commanderies that participated in the conclave, souvenirs of the event, became collector's items for spectators and participants. 
Not quite large enough for a bed, this was likely used as a sofa, throw blanket, or a piano cover. Next up is a two-ball cane from 1897 made of wood. With its enclosed rolling balls, has been a popular Masonic folk art motif for over a century, honoring the biblical blacksmith Tubal Cain. This well-preserved example was hand-carved in 1897 by Janus Jerome Rolf, past master of Nevada Lodge No. 13 from 1875 to 77. Along with familiar Masonic symbols, compass and square, and wood-carved animals, snake, frog, double-headed dog, Past Master Rolf carved his name and the date along the bottom of the cage below the cane's head. And we'll close out with the Scottish Rite Master Mason Apra, circa 1820 to 1850, watercolor on silk. The exquisitely detailed handiwork of this early 19th century apron, constructed of silk fabric and trimmed with a pleated red silk ribbon, includes on the reverse a basting stitch that fastens the muslin backing to the painted silk front. A more careful, barely perceptible running stitch is used on the front to finish the pleated ribbon, indicating that its maker, likely the wife or a female relative of its owner, was a highly skilled needleworker. Donated by Richard Shadburn of Goleta, whose grandfather, Ludwell McKay of Louisville, Kentucky, was the original owner. And even though it's not shown in here, or it's not part of this article, uh, there's actually an apron that was donated by my home lodge, Solomon Staircase, which we have a letter stating that it was Davy Crockett's, or one of Davy Crockett's aprons. Um, that's actually at the Henry Coyle Museum. It's been on permanent loan, basically, from our lodge to there. Um, I'll have to throw some pictures up there as well. So it's pretty interesting, the story behind it. I think it's still in doubt whether it actually was Davy Crockett's apron, but we do have letters that kind of go back saying how it got to be, you know, how it got donated to our lodge and kind of the path it went through. So with that, that's going to close out this article. Thanks for listening. And we'll close out this episode with an article called A Shared Heritage. Masonic Folk Art Provides a Bridge to Today's Modern Makers by Amy Newell. When John Luker first presented his hand-carved master's chair in 1871 to fellow members of Swan Lodge No. 358 in Mount Pleasant, Ohio, it must have been quite a sight. Along a matching set of columns and candle stands, the ornate wooden chair was a gift to mark the opening of the new lodge hall. It was crowned by a bright blue square and compass painted with deep aqua-tinted glass mixed into the pigment. In the soft light of the lodge room, it would have glinted and sparkled spectacularly. Up and down the piece, Masonic embellishments are delicately rendered in shiny metallic paint. Its shanks form columns topped with globes, while paintings depicting the five-pointed star, the candelabra, sabers, and an all-seeing eye adorn its back and sides. The chair is an incredible work of art, and yet one that, historically speaking, isn't likely to end up on display in a museum. In fact, relatively little is even known of its maker. Luker was not a formally trained artist, nor a very prolific one, but he and his chair exemplify the long and rich tradition of folk arts within Freemasonry, a relationship stretching back to the founding of the country and one that has helped shape popular culture both within and outside the fraternity. What is folk art? Folk art resists simple definition. It's a tradition that covers hundreds of years across the entire globe. It includes everything from 17th century African textiles to today's county fair crafters. 
Broadly speaking, however, folk art is made with a utilitarian purpose by self-taught or informally trained craftspeople. It is handmade, not machine-made or mass-produced. It speaks to a common culture, and like outside art and self-taught art, it exists outside of the academic mainstream. For that reason, folk art tends to exist within close communities, often for ceremonial practical purposes. Freemasonry, with its scores of lodge jewels, regalia, and other paraphernalia, plus its expansive symbolic language, provides a rich source of opportunities for this kind of artistic ex expression. As Freemasonry's reach expanded during the late 19th century, the so-called Golden Age of Fraternities, when American fraternal groups were conferring some 1,000 different degrees on 200,000 initiates annually, so too did the swell of ceremonial objects and regalia made for the fraternity by amateur craftspeople, makers, and artisans. The aprons, signs, and furniture used in Lodge were adorned with symbols and figures that were meaningful to their owners and communities. The artists behind them were often anonymous or little known, and yet together they form a body of work that not only speaks to an enduring Masonic heritage, but also helps provide a sort of artistic vernacular that spoke to artists outside the fraternity. With so many members and so many pieces of folk art being produced for them, the fraternity found itself on a two-way street, both inspired by the fashions of the time, while also influencing them. Take Luker's chair, for example. As a piece of furniture design, it's an exultant blending of artistic styles. The faux inlay of paneling is typical of the mid to late 1800s, while the X-shaped legs and curl base are 1860s Renaissance revival. The claw feet, meanwhile, suggest Chippendale design from the 1760s. The chair, in both form and design, is practically overstuffed with meaning, a marriage of high style and common function, master craftsmanship and artistic ebullience. As both a work of mid-19th century American art and as an artifact of Masonic craft, it illustrates a unique cultural identity. The Masonic Mission It's no surprise that Freemasonry, with its large pool of membership, provided a market for folk arts to flourish. But the connection ran deeper than that. As artworks produced by and for everyday people, American folk art was often concerned with the same values that Masonry espoused particularly concepts like fellowship, labor, and community. Masonry helped provide the visual language needed to represent those values. Consider that within the first three degrees of Masonry, more than 90 different symbols are used to express tenets like brotherly love, relief, and truth. As such, a blending of Masonic and non-Masonic symbols can be seen in many works from the 18th and 19th century. Powder horns used by soldiers during the Revolutionary War were often decorated by their owners with Masonic symbols alongside signifiers of the American cause, like flags, liberty caps, or shields. At home, many American Freemasons went to bed under coverlets woven with a mix of patriotic and Masonic symbols. Glass, ceramics, and household furniture also shared this decorative vocabulary. These symbols helped forge a shared American cultural identity. For instance, a circa 1804 fire bucket owned by Zachariah Stevens of Gloucester, Massachusetts is decorated with a painting of the Masonic square and compass and a pair of clasped hands. The symbol, signifying fidelity within Freemasonry, also holds meaning outside the fraternity. Clasped hands representing peace can be found going back thousands of years. The bucket itself has no particular Masonic use. Fire buckets were extremely common household goods and one of the best weapons of the time for fighting fire. 
At the first outbreak of a blaze, neighborhood bucket brigades could form a line to pass buckets of water and help douse a house fire. In fact, Stevens was a member of the Gloucester Masonic Fire Society, which required members to be helpful to each other in extinguishing fires and in saving and taking the utmost care of each other's goods. His fire bucket, then, provides a glimpse into both the use of Masonic symbology and a slice of early 19th century American life. Express Yourself While folk art tends to stress the importance of commonly shared traditions, it also fosters individual expression. As handmade pieces, works of folk art are unique to both their owner and maker. That duality also resonates within Freemasonry, which promotes fellowship and community while encouraging members to be the best men they can be. Perhaps nowhere is this individualism more on display than in the Masonic aprons that are presented to new initiates. The tradition of personalizing Masonic aprons is a long one. For many early lodges in the United States, the apron was one of the most important signifiers of individual style, evident in scores of highly decorated and personalized aprons from the period that survived to this day. One apron from the late 1700s and used in Massachusetts is made of white leather and trimmed in black lace, with black lettering spelling out Memento Mori, meaning Remember Death. The inscription signifies that it was a mourning apron, possibly worn during a Masonic funeral, and invokes the passage of time that's both a central tenet of Masonry and a common theme within many folk arts. In addition to providing a creative outlet for early American Masons, the apron was also the canvas on which many folk artists plied their trade, like Nathan Lakeman, 1804-1835 of Salem, Massachusetts, who along with partner Stephen Hooper advertised in local newspapers during the 1820s for Masonic aprons of the newest and most elegant patterns. Several of Lakeman's aprons feature a similar symbolic arrangement. The backs and sides of the aprons are adorned with other Masonic symbols unique to their owners, a prime example of individual expression within a common, unifying tradition. As for Lakeman, a member of the Jordan Lodge in Danvers, Massachusetts, and one of scores of similarly untrained craftspeople across the country, he may have been a talented artist, but evidently he wasn't a particularly successful one. By 1831, Lakeman had married and taken a job as a cashier at a local bank. In 1835, at just 31 years old, he died of consumption. Aprons may represent the most personal realm of artistic expression within masonry, but they weren't the only ones. Many lodges created or commissioned unique works that were meant to be shared, such as the circa 1820s lodge chest housed at the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library. Lodge chests, uncommon today, were regular features of the lodges during the 19th century. As most lodges met in shared spaces, the 1820 piece, which is unsigned, is painted a striking red and stenciled with columns, a stone archway, square and compass, and many other common Masonic symbols, echoing the trend of the time when walls, furniture, and textiles frequently featured stenciled decorations. The stenciled chest, like many Masonic folk art pieces, demonstrates how larger styles and artistic trends found their way into the craft. Post-Industrial Appeal Systematic mechanization upended nearly all aspects of life in the 19th century, as the craftsman and artisan class was largely replaced by automation. It was out of a nostalgia brought on by the Industrial Age that the so-called arts and crafts movement took hold. First in England, during the mid to late 1800s, and soon after in the United States. Though more academic than folk art, the arts and crafts movement stressed workmanship, natural materials, and simple aesthetics, clear references to pre-industrial early American folk art. 
California would prove to be an important hub of the arts and crafts movement, as the style can be seen clearly to this day in the 1920s craftsman bungalows so popular in Pasadena and parts of the Bay Area, and in the paintings and custom furniture of artists like Arthur and Lucia Matthews, whose furniture shop in San Francisco served as an important design studio in the early 20th century. It's in the modern incarnation of the arts and craft and maker movement that masonry's folk art tradition remains alive. Through websites like Etsy, scores of craftsmen working with leather, jewelry, and wood are creating works that harken back to their 19th century forebearers. With it has come a resurgence in interest among masons in their own artistic heritage. Perhaps chief among this set is Chris Holm, a custom furniture designer and Masonic woodworker. The North Hollywood Lodge number 542 member is the owner of the common gavel, where he carves and sells all manner of gavels, sounding boards, rods, and plaques, along with other Masonic-themed home goods. The business, Holmes says, started with making pieces for friends or on request, until he saw a hole in the market. When I started, almost no one was doing this commercially with any quality at all, he says. It was just being mass-produced, stamped out somewhere. Instead, he blends his own aesthetic, he describes it as rustic modern, with clean designs and warm natural materials, with nods to the intricate hand-carved Masonic antiques that are so much a part of the fraternity's history. In doing so, he is providing a link to a long and particularly proud tradition. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.